Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome back to Point of Origin, a podcast about the world of food worldwide. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. This is our very last episode of season one, and I would like to thank every one of you for supporting this podcast. It has been such an enriching experience for me as a host to talk to so many people for whom I have such great admiration and to partner with a company like iHeartRadio that helps amplify the work that we'd like to see in the world. So much gratitude to everyone who made this first season possible. And before we close out on our final episode of the season, part two of our series, Farming Wild Black, in the second interview with my friend Gabrielle Etienne, in our discussion, there is a mention of racial violence that could be a very upsetting story for some of our listeners. So. I'd like to mention that off top, and I would also like to say that if you're able, it is such a powerful story that I do believe it will be worth your time. Again, I'd like to thank you all for making the season possible. We are already hard at work on the second season, and while I've got you here, a gentle reminder that if you are enjoying this podcast, the best way to ensure that we continue to enjoy this platform and share these stories is if you give us a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you so much for considering, and please enjoy Farming While Black, part two. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today, we are focusing on Farming While Black, the many intricacies of 
blackness and African-Americanness in relationship to the land. Our next guest is the Associate Professor of Environmental Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Monica White is also the author of an amazing book that was just released in 2019 called Freedom Farmers, and we will talk about all of the above today. Monica, thank you so much for joining us on Point of Origin. Thank you for the invitation. Excited to be here with you. Let's just get right into the book Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance, and the Black Freedom Movement. There's a lot to unpack in the book, a lot of amazing themes around blackness and relationship to land. But before we get into that, can you just tell us what your impetus for wanting to write this book was? So I was uh, returning to Detroit to uh, take care of my parents. I was moving back to Detroit and needed a research topic. I was going to uh, teach at Wayne State University, and I knew that there was a robust black farmers movement that had preceded the 2000s and really wanted to sort of capture that. And so joined and met Baba Malik Akini to do some organizing around, around the Detroit Rebellion Conference, the 67 Rebellion sort of recognizing the history of resistance in the city. And I knew the black folks had been growing food in Detroit for a long time, my dad, my grandmother, my sister. And I knew that the scholarship that was coming out about the movement, uh, about the return to uh, food production, was really missing the black folks, uh, you know, folks who look like me, wanted to sort of capture what was happening in that moment, but then also finding that the current, uh, at least in the 2000s, that moment needed a, a historical frame that was different than what I found. When I looked up the scholarship on what do we know about black farmers, a lot of it came from a deficit approach. And it talked a lot about uh, slavery, tenant farming, sharecropping, and those exploitive conditions and relationships to the land or the way that agriculture is being used as oppressive. And yet what I was hearing in Detroit was using agriculture as a strategy of resistance, resilience, and as a way for liberation. And so I didn't hear it. And as our now uh, recent uh, ancestor, Tony Morrison said, if there's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written, then we're the ones who have to, to write it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the idea around Freedom Farmers came from, knowing that there had to be other reasons, other frames to understand black folks and our relationship to the land and not seeing it written, but yet hearing it. You know, you hang out with generational farmers or black folks who've never, whose families never left the land, and you hear this language of being able to feed myself and free myself. Reverend Wendell Perry says, I can free myself when I can feed myself. And mm -hmm. to hear how profound that statement was, and yet not reading any scholarship to elevate his philosophy, you know, I felt like this was a perfect kind of a contribution um, to how we understand our relationship to, to food production and to the land more generally. Absolutely. So obviously in these more oppressive accounts of our relationship to the land, that are rooted in enslavement have some generational or I guess period specific elements to them. Um, mm -hmm. Were you finding that this disposition of liberation was more uh, something about a, a recent generation or do you feel that mm -hmm. that has been present throughout but we just haven't been exposed to that ideology? 
You know, yeah, thank you for that question. I feel like our ancestors have found all kinds of ways to resist. And yet our scholarship around resistance strategies has really come from universities. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a disconnect between how people resist and how people study resistance. And so occupying both spaces, right? So coming from a community known for resistance and resilience in Detroit, and also joining the academy and feeling like the university tools could be useful for our liberation, I do think that there have been all kinds of ways that we've resisted that has been overlooked. So yes, I wanted to really sort of problematize the way we frame resistance. You know, we often think about protest marches and boycotts, and those are really almost the only ways that we, as theorists, talk about what it means to resist. And yet this current moment shows us other ways to resist, and I'll just give one example. Here's this horrible situation that comes, Barbecue Becky, right? Now at 11, people fired up over this viral video from Oakland, fired up their grills tonight to take a stand. The group says they're tired of people calling police prematurely. They are upset over a confrontation at a barbecue at Lake Merritt. It was all caught on camera last month. The video is still getting passed around the internet nonstop tonight. What's going on? Uh, She doesn't want to talk now. Uh, It's illegal to have a charcoal grill in the park here. What kind of grill are you not allowed, and why are you so bent out of shape over them being here? Because it causes extra money from our city to Uh do things when children get injured because of it. So yet, the Oakland community has just now celebrated its second celebration around recognizing the potential calamity of the situation, but embracing that as a celebration of blackness. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like the scholarship is behind the ways that we resist and Freedom Farmers was an effort to sort of show the links between the historic resistance using food and food production. So we talk about the seeds in our hair that we carried over the Middle Passage. We talk about the demand, our demand for uh, provision grounds during slavery. We talk about market days. We talk about all the various ways historically uh, bartering and creating these spaces to celebrate culture or using food as a part of that have been used historically as a part of our, our freedom strategy. I'm curious what you think the role of some institutions have been in further perpetuating this exploitative narrative, uh, whether that be the the university or uh, yeah. the food system. Like, what are some of those institutional pressure points? Yeah, I just think everybody. <laughs> yeah, who's not basically? You know, I mean, not to be, you yeah. know, not to. You know, not a broad brush. I think that Shemananda Adichie argues the danger of a single story, right? So mm-hmm. you come up with a single story, and it becomes easy to grab a hold of it mm-hmm. and then run with it. And so those of us that are currently involved in dismantling that single story historically, and I, and I think that it, I, I can't point to an institution that isn't responsible for oversimplifying Black folks' relationship to the land. It's you know the university, it's the ag community, it's you know, in some ways, it's even how we tell the, the story of civil rights with no ill intention necessarily, right? I think that, you know, that danger of the single story means that there's certain ideas that get shared. And then once that is shared, it is assumed that's the only narrative. And there comes somebody like me who says that can't be the only story. And so therefore, how do we unearth some of the other ways to, to, to uh, interrogate the scholarship, find the data to really make a different case?
it was not just my research question was unearthed in this movement. So I let Detroit and the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network teach me language like food sovereignty, food security. This wasn't something I had taken in school. I understood what it means to resist. I studied social movements. And so marrying my understanding of social movement and uh, the Detroit Black Community Food Security classes, so to speak, on food sovereignty really helped me see that what they were doing wasn't new. It was just new in this moment in these particular ways because they inherited a legacy of resistance and resilience using food as a strategy. And so that was really what I was trying to capture. But yes, if you think of which entity is guilty, I don't know of one that isn't in perpetuating the myths around agriculture as, as oppressive, and not just for black folks. In talking about sovereignty of food, that is really a conversation that is central to land. How do you reconcile for black folks who are are with you intellectually and saying like, yeah, we, you know, there are many stories to be told about our relationship to the land here, but one problem, we don't have any land. Yeah, you have great questions. Um, So absolutely folks are asking a question if it's my approach has always been as an asset-based approach, right? So I think that's a different orientation that I take to scholarship, which mm-hmm. is every community has something upon which to build. What are those assets? And then how can we build on that? Which I think is a different approach. Mm-hmm. So for me, every community has something upon which to build. And so if I may not have access to land in terms of land ownership, what are other ways that we can you know, obtain access to those methods or mechanisms to, to grow? My dear friend, Dara Cooper, talks about individual ownership leads to individual uh, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so collective ownership is an important component to make sure that it's solidified. I just talked to folks at the Princeton Theological Seminary, and these are folks who run their own churches. And Reverend Heber Brown talks about how black church ownership and the land that black churches you know, have access to is an important part of like a land trust, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens if we use the church-owned land as a part of our food production uh, resurgence and reconnection in those particular kinds of ways? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I'm coming from a frame, you know, in Detroit where we have access to a lot of land. A lot of that land is contaminated, and so how do we restore the land? How do we share access? So you talk about community land trusts. You talk about soil remediation. And then and for those who don't have access to land land, Uh, There are all kinds of beautiful techniques of, of growing indoors that don't require a lot of money. Well, folks are growing in, you know, cut up two liter bottles on walls, you know. And so I think that there are lots of ways, creative ways that folks are growing using various mediums, like, you know, maybe a hydroponic or, you know, something along those lines. And there's a wide range of how folks are accessing land. And let's just be also clear that there are still black folks that are farming in the South who have land that is generational, that is, you know, uh, inherited land, and really trying to find some collective ways to make sure that we... uh, retain access to that which we have without losing another anchor.
welcome back to Point of Origin. Let's talk more about Detroit because obviously you've learned a lot there and it has been kind of a, an epicenter for the revival of urban farming across the country. What are the factors, environmental factors of Detroit, I'm talking more like socially and culturally, that have made it so amenable to this urban farming movement? For the black folks who were in the South, who contested any form of this racialized, exploitive relationship to land, they would be threatened, their lives would be threatened. At night, they would get to Birmingham, and by morning, they were in Detroit. So there was a really clear line between Detroit and Alabama in terms of the migration. And I would also argue, based on what farmers in the region told me, especially about what was happening in Lowndes County, where black folks were especially politicized, right, uh, radically politicized, who, many of whom ended up in Detroit. So, one, I think that there was a political connection mm-hmm. that exists between Alabama and Detroit that really hasn't been uh, examined to, to my preference. I, I feel like there's a lot that can be examined in terms of understanding particular black radical orientation in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Additionally, we took our you know black radical ideology, but we also took our seeds and our knowledge of food production. Mm-hmm. And so our generation was returning where our parents had migrated. We wanted to make sure that our children had access to nutrient-rich food. And so that agricultural knowledge was one generation removed, but we also knew that we were clearly providing for ourselves in the South. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there was some as a strategy, some connection that wasn't too far-fetched. And, and I also think that, for me personally, Detroit put the world on wheels. And once mm-hmm. the automobile crisis collapsed, then folks were forced to sort of think about, well, what do we know? Mm-hmm. What do we remember? What well, can we reconnect as a strategy to build resilient communities around food production? And then that conversation of food is just ever-present. Um, how do we make sure that we not only feed our families, but feed and build our communities and build community health and wellness? And so I just feel like there are those kinds of ideas that were a uh, perfect termination for what we see happening in Detroit now. Definitely. And I totally support your continued work in following the trajectory of the Black Radicals from the South to Detroit. I think that is super interesting. I want to ask you about land reparation. You know, it is somewhat being censored politically, uh, at least in a way that it hasn't um, in in my lifetime. What are your ideas about a land-based reparation in terms of effective policy, like how it could actually happen, and or whether or not you feel this is the right kind of prioritization for advocates of of food justice and environmental justice? So I will say that the scholarship around land dispossession, especially of Black folks, we have to respond to that, right? In order for a society to move forward, I do think that reconciling past historical wrongs for the stolen labor and the stolen land, including, you know, indigenous First Nations folks. But that has to be a part of how we move forward as a whole. I don't know what mechanism, what form that takes. I think that anytime a nation and a world has created wealth and there are communities that have suffered from 
that wealth, <laughs> the extraction of those resources, those people, those riches, that land, there has to be some reconciling of that. And reparations is an important part of that conversation. Uh, I think that the case can absolutely be made and has been made more definitively now in this historic moment than I've ever seen, you know, supporting uh, Black-led institutions, both of the educational nature, like in land-grant institutions, and supporting Black-led organizations that are working to respond to the needs of folks around food and land. Outside of that, I, just, I don't know enough. I, you know, I've read about it, but I don't feel like qualified to speak on the dissemination and what that looks like. Well, oftentimes that is the wisest answer to give. And- and I completely respect it. So, um, that, that is totally adequate. One last question for you. And again, it is about your your latest book, Freedom Farmers. Such a powerful book. I mean, really, I, I think, you know, I feel pretty well versed in a lot of these conversations. But, you know, you, you had such clarity from the onset in trying to further ideas around Black folks' relationship to the land, especially African Americans. So I'm wondering, do you have any specific hopes or directions for for the readers of this text? Yes. So I wrote this book for you. I I wrote this book for us. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book because I wanted to give us some sense that we don't have to reinvent a strategy, that we can inherit the legacy of our ancestors and previous generations in terms of how do we get free. And so for me, the book and all that it took to write it and all of the intentions around it were really so that we could think about our relationship, connection to the land, our responsibility to the environment, right, to the planet, and our connection and responsibility to each other. And so for me, a great outcome would be to allow the book to complicate what we thought our relationship was, use it as um, inspiration for us to reconnect to the land and to each other, and to figure out what this new iteration, what this generation's commitment will be in this legacy, as you read. So I'm excited to see what we do in this generation as we're grappling with how do we make sure that our communities are cared for and using food as a beginning conversation, but connecting the conversations around food to conversations of land, conversations of education, conversations of health care. Uh, but just because this is our history, this, this is ours. And I want us to to own that. I want us to reclaim that. I want us to embrace that as we figure out a way forward. Amen to all that. Well, thank Thank you you. so much for this resource. Looking forward to your continued research and publishings on this topic. Monica White, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. Thank you for joining us today on Point of Origin. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed myself. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today, we have a very special guest from Holly Springs, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, Gabrielle Etienne, who is a cultural preservationist, which is the perfect umbrella term for her 
as she is a gardener, farmer, cook, community organizer. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us today on Point of Origin. Hi, thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Of course. So today we're talking to a really cross-section of Black folks who are involved in agriculture in different capacities across the U.S. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to talk to you because, well, a couple reasons. But first of all, I just really, as a as a fan of your work, love the way that you express your relationship to the land and how your embodiment on the land, in the garden, when you're harvesting, when you're cooking, just feels so grounded. I wanted Mm. to talk to you about your relationship to the land and how you started to develop this practice. Mm, Okay. I don't feel like I'm anything new. I am really standing kind of on the shoulders of a lot of women. So thank you for that. My relationship to the land really kind of jumped off when I was living in New York kind of seeking connection. I was really homesick and I would come home a lot. And every time I would come home, I would get in the garden with my grandfather and with his brother, my great uncle, Andrew. And um, I started to learn these things about my family, about my family's history, about, you know, just access, just our beautiful relationship with our land and the land around here within like a 10 mile radius of where I live for a long time. And I just started feeling way more grounded, way more connected to who I am, but also to like who my family is and the importance of our own stories. A little, I guess, history is I was working in fashion for a while and I ended up just feeling some of the traumas of working like corporate, working in New York, working in, you know, just fast-paced corporate America. And when I transitioned out of fashion, I started working in food. And I was working on the line in um, this gastropub and the meatpacking and I was also doing a lot of food storytelling for different brands and chefs and one of those chefs was JJ. Johnson and his work kind of aligned with my family's work in a way that I didn't expect. And the more I started to uncover with the work I was doing with him, the more, you know, I'd bring stuff home. And I remember my grandfather's brother, older brother, Herbert, when I showed him this rice that was from Trinidad, that was an African strain of rice. I remember him being like, oh, I remember when Grandpa John used to grow rice in the yard and we used to harvest it and he talked about winnowing and he talked about, you know, his his memories were vague because he was a little boy, but he remembered these key things and that's how the rice got on the table. And that really like made me, it just woke something up in me yeah. around like place. And I started to think about, oh, wow, well, where were we before we were here, too? To have that knowledge and that technology, you have to, you know, be in certain areas. So just discovery after discovery kind of brought me back here because I was really focused on telling other folks stories and, and digging up this history 
through food, through food research, through food kind of art and, you know, development. Thank you for sharing that. That is a very dense journey that I would like to <laughs> further unpack. So J.J. Johnson, okay. if people don't know, is a young-ish millennial chef in New York. He just opened a new rice-centric uh, restaurant mm -hmm. called Field Trip. Mm -hmm. And J.J. also worked with at Cecil's, which is a pretty legendary spot in Harlem. Mm -hmm. So he is a very prominent young chef. When you are talking about, you know, the rice being part of the epiphany for you, I'm assuming that you're talking about when you were working with JJ and he was kind of also cultivating this vision around uh, a rice-based restaurant. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So oof, it's so crazy to think about how that unfolded. But he was researching a strain of rice called Ariza Glabarima, and Glenn Roberts from Ansonville was helping him with that and providing him grains. And Glenn, while I was working with JJ, really became kind of a mentor for me in the space because we could nerd out about like agriculture and grain facts. <laughs> and sun cycles and he just put me on to so much stuff that really like sent me down this mildly crazy rabbit hole of research yeah and, <laughs> so, and can you say um what Ansa mills is for people who don't know oh it's a it's a grain mill based in south carolina mm -hmm. um they do various heirloom and land race grains and corn and it's a farm it's a mill and Glenn is the one who founded that and is an awesome farmer and just really on the ground doing the work. So basically, we were working on some concepts. Well, it was the grain concept, which initially wasn't field trip. It was a different name altogether. But we were, you know, brainstorming and mapping things out and kind of came to the rice is culture point of view when we were doing this work because every culture has rice, has grains on the table, and it just seemed like this unifying crop. So finding, like, those stories that were intertwined in that and, and reading about, like, even Japanese grains of rice and black rice and, you know, folklore around these various crops because all these crops have their own stories and their own folklore, and I think that's what really tied me in because I grew up hearing folklore and I grew up hearing stories from my elders my grandfather still will pop up and like when he's ready he will share <laughs> he will share a story quick um it was really beautiful to like learn about our rice and our our grain history and some of the other grains that you know I read in books I remember the first mention I think I ever read was in Jessica B. Harris's book, The Africa Cookbook. She talks about grains out of Africa. Mm -hmm. And that really was like, oh, okay. I think as an American, as an African-American who grew up in the South, I didn't really know much about us having our own crops. And mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of those things came from Africa that we eat now, you know, growing up, you just don't think about that stuff. But through like a lot of the literature that I started reading, 
and the works of like Cornelia Bailey and Verda Mae Grosvenor, you really like learn a lot about our just our history with agriculture and seed keeping and how important those crops were to us and to our stories and to the passing down of the hows and the who's, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in what you're saying about story and folklore. Obviously, it is central to the African diasporic tradition. Mm-hmm. And your grandfather, he's a gardener, right? I think that's who I've seen on the ground before in, in the garden. Well, so my grandfather is, I mean, you could call him a gardener, but really he he and his brothers, all of his siblings, they grew up farming. Okay. Yeah, I think in reference to my grandfather's generation, we're talking about hundreds of acres of land. Mm-hmm. That's definitely uh, farming. <laughs> that is not gardening. I know that. Right. That is definitely not gardening. And yeah. so I think that's the kind of the distinct difference is like, and also what they were growing mm-hmm. and why they were growing. You know, it wasn't the reason that I'm growing necessarily now. It was out of necessity. And their parents, they were like, oh, okay, we're doing this. So you're going to get this work too. Come on. Mm-hmm. You're going to pick. 300 pounds of cotton today. Like, this is the work that they were doing growing up. And so their relationship to farming growing up is very different from what I see in them now as they work an acre lot of land Mm -hmm. and feed everybody around us. Mm -hmm. And my my grandfather's brother, Andrew, has kind of been my, my sensei in the field because he holds a lot of the oral history in my family, which is crazy because he's the baby brother. And it's when we're in the garden that we're able to talk about those things or when we're in the kitchen that he's sharing those things or when we're showing dried seeds, you know, that's when those stories really come to life. Reach inside and get out to how many takes you need that last you for a week or two three, uh-huh. you get out all the tables you need where you keep in house Yeah, so my grandfather's an engineer and an inventor. He is just an incredible inventor and kind of magician of sorts because he can turn anything into something. That's how they kept the potatoes, called a tater heel. I mean that in the sense of he rebuilds the tractors so like that's kind of his relationship to the garden with uncle andrew and i he is our mechanic engineer and we do the planting and the harvesting for the most part and so whenever things break down it's in his shop which is located right behind our house in terms of proximity it's kind of like we have everything we kind of need within like the street very powerful and enviable, I have to say. Do you have any stories off the top of your head that have been passed down to you around food and folklore? Mm, Yes, I think my stories that have been passed directly to me from my relatives are more memories. So the games that they would play as children when they were out in the field, what is it, when it's peanut season, there's Jack in the Bush is a game that they used to play. Which that was just like a sounds like an old person's game. Jack in the Bush. You know, 
<laughs> that was way before computers. Right. <laughs> so what is Jack in the Bush? Uh, it's a game, and the way it was explained to me, they would have peanuts. You know, one would be the guesser, and one would be the, I guess, the holder of the peanuts. And so they would hide them in their hands, and the guesser would have to, you know, approximate how many peanuts are in your hand. And if it was wrong, if it was over, you had to give them the peanuts. And if it was under, they had to make up the different. It was, oh, God. Thankfully, I recorded these things. <laughs> you know how many you have in your hand. You have, I said, you had five peanuts in your hand. And you said, Jack is in the bush. And the other person said, cut him down. And you say, how many licks? you guessing how many peanuts in your hand. If you said you had five in your hand, and the man said, Ten. Well, give me five to make me ten. <laughs> but if he guessed exactly what was in your hand, you had to give them to him. Like hearing the way that they formulated games and and created you know, their own reality, even in, like, kind of hard times and, like, the way they just created these worlds is really interesting. It's hard to house all of these, all of these things that they created, but I think that's what made me pursue filmmaking, like, as a medium to record these things and keep these things and pass these things. Mm -hmm. You chronicle your life and your family's life with such joy and there's such intimacy there, do you feel like compelled or that it's part of your work to to share that that intimacy and that relationship that you have with your family? I don't know that I always have felt compelled to like share that necessarily. However, I think in the process of sharing that, I've realized how much it's opened up for other people the possibilities of what your relationship to your elders can be and kind of this inheritance that they hold that is storytelling, that is recipes, that is, you know, whatever form it takes, but just opening up communication so that these things can be passed down. That feels very important, especially, you know, as a form of preservation. You're right. The preservation is is so important because when you think about how quickly that generational knowledge has been lost. It is mm -hmm. it's because we, we don't talk explicitly with our elders oftentimes about right. their remembrances and relationships to the land. And unfortunately, oftentimes we, you know, that land is not in our families in the same way, you know, which is part of that generational loss. It's of memory right. and also of, of place. The fact that you do have access both to the memories and the place is powerful, and we are grateful that you share it with all of us. So what are you working on right now that has you most energized? Mm, yeah. So Revival Taste Collective is the name of an online journal that I started a few 
a couple years ago um, when I was living in New York and I was making these visits to the South and I went to Sapelo Island for the first time when I started this journal and got a chance to meet Cornelia Bailey's family and be on their land and learn about their ancestral connections to the land and place and the things that they grow. So all of that was kind of a part of my discovery of myself and my own story or the start of it. So I started putting that in various like random journals online and um, that was the start of it. And I kind of put that on the back burner when I was in New York and when I made the decision to move home with intention to preserve our land, to tell these stories, to preserve these stories, Revival Case Collective felt like the way that I was going to do that, the, the place that I was going to house these stories and bring people together in order to taste the food, in order to see the seeds and, and feel the seeds and maybe take seeds home, but also commune over storytelling. And so I'm really excited because we've been doing a few things here on like what I call the Woodard Homestead, which is our, our land here where our house, where the shop is and where the garden is. I'm going to start a series of events through these journal entries basically online. So mm. the things that I've been writing about that I've been sharing, we're actually going to like bring them to life through dinners wow. and through community cinema and screenings of independent films and documentary films and things that are important to the culture so that the kids in the community have access to this knowledge and they have access to the art. And we did one screening already of my film, Tall Grass, which is you know, the stories from my community, some of the inheritance in the form of growing and keeping, and also what's happening around here in terms of the highway and how that's cutting into our land as well as displacing our elders. So there's a lot hidden in the grass, and, and this is kind of shining a light on those things, on some of those stories. Well, it's so crucial that you are creating this space and that you have this relationship to the elders and I mean, yeah, thank God that they're they're sharing and that you're you're documenting. It is a gift that extends far beyond your family. So will you be making like an announcement? Are you gonna do it in series or do you think it'll be like a one off thing where we'll just get like an update? So via Instagram <laughs> That's the newspaper. Yeah. That's how you do it. Exactly. Okay. Um give us your IG handle so we know where to find oh. it. Okay, it's my name, Gabrielle, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, underscore Etienne, E-I-T-I-E-N-N-E. Gabrielle Hmm. Etienne, cultural preservationist in Apex, North Carolina, doing amazing, amazing work. Thank you for joining us today on Point of Origin. Thank you so much, Stephen. This was wonderful. That's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. 
And thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.